Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. We've been talking with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a professor of psychology, the director of graduate training, and the coordinator of the behavioral analysis program area at the West Virginia University. In part one, we began with mastery-based learning, and then Claire introduced us to the concept of super resurgence. In part two, we talked about relapsing behaviors, quadratic equations, philosophical answers contrasted with ethical ones, loopy training and the constructional approach, variable reinforcement schedules, and collaborations between trainers and researchers. We could have kept going, but I thought, no, it would be too long if we kept going all the way to the end, so I arbitrarily stopped us at that point. And now we'll begin again where we left off at the end of part two. We're going to head down some really unexpected and very fun rabbit holes. Enjoy. I like that these relationships end up being so wonderfully right. mutual and, and mutually beneficial. It's good for everybody. Yes. It's always fun when I see you sort of jotting something down. And stuff. It's like, oh, what, what, what is that sparked in terms of what research project is now going to be? initiated in your lab because uh, we've had some conversation about horses. And then there's that whole, and I was thinking about the reinforcement schedules, and there's that the question of what are you studying in behavior analysis? And that it's not always Mm -hmm. directly relevant to what we want to be doing with our animals. And the the reinforcement schedules would be a, a great example of that, that Just because somebody is studying it in a lab, that does not mean that what they are saying is that this is best practice. They are uh, showing us what may occur when you use those intermittent schedules. But then we have to decide, is that what we want for our learners? And I think that's one of those pieces where people get on thin ice, where they say, oh, but my training is science-based and sort of implying that all that all studies are equal and all studies are uh, are are relevant but you know sometimes some of those researches I find are very useful for things we do not uh, voluntarily you know like there are best practices the things that we know we should be doing but then there are all these things we do without being aware that happen And I find that research helps me understand some of these things, you know, like when when you were saying before, Claire, um, I don't want to put my animal in extinction, but life happens. And so it's very useful to understand extinction. And so some of these, and you know, intermittent schedules, well, we may not be thinking about them, but they happen you know, in our, in our training without, or in our lives with our animals, they do happen. So some of those researches that I find are, are very useful 
even if it's not something that you want to apply, it's happening and you should be aware of it. Yeah. And I think that where they become most useful is when we can have these dialogues, right? So I think that probably, um, although Dominique, every time I listen to you talk, I'm just amazed at how well-read you are with behavior analysis work and literature, textbooks. Um, I think that when we can say like, oh, this seems like this seems like it's like this phenomenon. So what pieces of what we know from research that we've done are relevant and important and poured over um, and what pieces might not, but there's an unanswered question there that we could, you know, so the scientists, the scholars who are working in these, in these areas as researchers, can we help fill those gaps to answer a question for you or to make it poured over? And then sometimes I think it's just interesting. It's interesting fodder for discussion, right? Like, right. does this work? Is this, is this like this? How would it play out if it was? And is that what you're seeing when you go out and train? Um, and so, yeah, there's certainly fun conversations to have. And I mean, we've had this conversation of if what you're measuring are lever presses, and so you're, you're looking at the frequency of lever presses under various conditions. But you're not also recording what the animal was doing when it wasn't pressing the lever, because that was not relevant to that particular uh, study. But for our animals, for our horses, it's always relevant what they're doing or not doing, because if in between pressing the, in quotes, uh, per proverbial lever, they are banging on the stall wall, biting their handler, um, pawing deep holes in the, in the ground. Um, that's not particularly desirable, uh, but it wasn't being quantified. It wasn't being, it, it wasn't being described in the study that in between pressing the lever, the bird was plucking its feathers mm. or the rat was running in tight circles or something. No. Yeah. Even in the literature though, I think that there's some interesting pieces that researchers are just now starting to tap into or are gaining some more interest in. And so, um, you know, we have researchers at WVU that are looking at what happens in those in-between times, right? And they're finding some really interesting things. And so is the is the pigeon, for example, like waiting right at the key for the key light to come back on? Or are they tucking their head under their wing and, and looking away and, and trying to kind of squeeze themselves into the corner of the box away from where the key is? And I think the, those are interesting responses yes. to be able to know what is happening. So we've got one of, I mentioned Andy Latal earlier. He's another researcher who does a lot of work on extinction um, here. And he's doing some new work on social behavior um, among animals of the same species. And so they're doing a lot of video records of things. Um, they're doing a lot of, of paying really careful attention to what's happening in um, as to same species organisms. And they're typically, um, Andy's doing a lot of work with pigeons right now, um, where they're set up in situations where they 
are um, able to cooperate or not cooperate with each other? And are they um, choosing to cooperate and when do they cooperate and how? Um, and he's got these great videos that show exactly what they're doing. And, you know, you can look at the extent to which one pigeon is watching another pigeon uh, as they do a certain response and does the other pigeon then imitate what they do? And he's doing lots of really neat stuff that captures um, that richness of what's happening um, in between these discrete responses that might otherwise be the focus yeah. of your measurement. Just cool. So it's, it's really the next evolution in is to look between. Yeah. Yes. And to look more robustly. And I think those kinds of sophisticated measures will get easier and easier as our computing power increases, yeah. right? Um, so as we're better able to get automated measurement from video, um, which is coming on board now, um, as we're better able to, you know, kind of generate and move through um, responses more quickly, or we have better video recording capabilities, you know, just even thinking about the work that Michaela's done with Blondie and her description of how useful those video yeah. records were in terms of identifying times where the horses were cribbing or not cribbing and how different that can be across horses and so how valuable that is. Um, and when you've got 24 hours of video, you know, it, yes. <laughs> you got to have a way to process that efficiently. Um, particularly for doing the kind of work that we do that often involves um, working with the same fewer numbers of learners, but across a really long period of time, you know, so if we have 100 days of 24 hour video, yeah, you, can. you know, it, you can't pay a research assistant enough to do that at single speed, you know, you've, you've got to have ways to, to process that more robustly. And I think we're getting yeah. there, which will be neat. Yeah. When I'm uh, one of in the clinics, I want people to send me the video files rather than putting them up on uh, YouTube or something, because I want to be able to skim through the, the video. And you can't do that on the internet. And when you skim through, uh, what you start to see are the anomalies. You know, oh, oh, there was a break in the pattern. There was a change. And then you go back and you look at that piece what what was going on there that might be a good thing that was going on it might be a, oh that's where the behavior broke down but you do learn you learn how to go through fast so that you can go mm -hmm. through not only efficiently but more effectively because if you mm -hmm. just watch 30 minutes of raw video you'll miss it yeah, well, and then to be able to go back and then do a frame by yes. frame, right? So like, where exactly does this fall? Um, so this is not news to anybody on this call, but to, to the listening world out there. Um, so I have a horse with stifle issues and like being able to do, being able to look at video of how he's holding himself in balance and like what happens right there at that specific point where he loses his balance has been really, really valuable. Um, for me and for my vet. Uh, so, you know, we're able to do kind of better monitoring and tracking so that we can titrate what it is that we're asking him to do on any given day 
um, based on how well he's able to hold himself in balance and, you know, how comfortable he seems on that day. And video records have been a great way yeah. to do that. And it gives me a really nice point across time, you know, cause you get, you get what one of my friends calls barn blind, yes. you know, you see your own yep. animals every day. And, um, I'm fortunate that my, my horses live on my property. So I really do see them multiple times a day, every day. And, you forget what a month and a half ago looked like unless you can go back and say, oh, that's what a month and a half ago looked yep. like. And it this looks really different now, hopefully for the better. But if not, that's a good thing to know too. Yeah. But just to think like, it wasn't that long ago that we were, when we said we were filming things, we were actually filming <laughs> yes. things with film, yes. you know, and, and uh, the rate at which, the speed at which technology has changed what we can do um, is phenomenal. Yeah, I have drawers full of little cassettes of, of a video that probably will never be seen again because we don't have the technology. I don't have the technology anymore to watch them. You know, the changes have just been ah, blindingly fast. But I think also, you know, in terms of like loopy training, we started out, you know, you, you click, you reinforce, you, you cue the next behavior. You know, those, those are sort of big, lumpy statements. And now we're seeing all these little details within each part of that loop. You talk about the reinforcement strategy and this whole reinforcement process. It's not just you click and somehow there's this uh, uh, hay stretcher pellet suddenly pops into the horse's mouth. You know, there there's a beginning, middle, and and end, and the end uh, segues you into the next part of the loop, and there are all these details within each part of the loop that we are looking at and seeing more. And whenever you start, when you start looking inside, you know, okay, here are two things that sit side by side, but there's something that sits between them. What's that thing that sits between them? What's going on there? And that's really what, what we're doing with the loopy training more and more. And it sounds as though that's what the researchers are doing in the labs of what is sitting between. Which is really mm -hmm. exciting. There's, there's no empty space. No, not with a living no. organism. No. Nature abhors a vacuum and all the rest of that. So what sits in that, what we think of as empty space, what is filling it? And, and when you start looking, it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Another rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, and how those, how those responses get shaped and maintained and whether or not you start to see systematic patterns. Um, so Skinner, back in the early, one of his early publications, talked about superstition with his pigeons and the development of superstitious behavior. And so what they, what Skinner did is he put pigeons in a, in an operant chamber. So they were in a box and an operant chamber really for people who aren't familiar is it's a set sized box that typically has something that the, the animal can interact with and some way that food can be delivered. Um, and so the pigeons were put in these boxes and there was a, this was back in the day when reinforcers were programmed on mechanical tapes, speaking of evolution, um, that were cards with holes punched in them, right? And so the cards ran around this track and when it got to a hole in the card, it would raise the food 
hopper. So, so in pigeon chambers, there's usually a cup that's full of grain that is on a lever that can go up and down. And so in the old, old days, and of course this is all controlled by computers now, but when it would hit a a punch in the card, the hopper would come up and then the cards moving at a set speed. And so then the hopper would go, the food hopper, the um, grain bowl would go back down. And so he was interested in what would happen when pigeons were just left in these boxes for some period of time. Um, and food was just delivered at these points in time. And so it wasn't based on anything. You want to talk about just because mm-hmm. clicks. It's yes. the epitome. Yes. All just because clicks, all clicks come just because. Um, and what was really interesting um, to Skinner was that that animals developed superstition, what he called superstitions. So they were different for each bird, um, but one of the birds would like spin a certain number of ways, one way in the chamber and then spin the other way and then pick up the food. Um, And so we, we have all of these little pieces of superstition or chain, superstitious sequences that probably fill our time Um, When I started doing human work, um, so I'm really interested, this is something that you alluded to earlier, I'm really interested in what happens when new people start implementing um, behavior analytic and positive reinforcement-based interventions. And my experience with that, and this was my experience even really early on as a graduate student, was that people started, people got excited and they started using these approaches maybe before they had a full understanding of the approach and how to use it. Um, And so the unkind way to say that would be before they knew what they were doing. And I still feel like that. (laughs) You know, I I feel like every time I get into a clinic, um, Dominique, I say like, I know a lot about the principles of behavior and I'm a mediocre clicker trainer at best. Uh, So I definitely feel that way myself. But I got really interested in what happened when people didn't always do things consistently. Mm -hmm. And so you started to see these inconsistencies in what I would call teaching, what you guys would call training, although maybe teaching is the best word in both circumstances, right? So what happens when you start teaching inconsistently? And by teaching here, I think um, it's important to underscore, like what I mean is using positive reinforcement strategies. So I, I got... I wanted to do research on this, but I didn't want to goof up learning for Mm. people who needed positive reinforcement strategies, right? And so it puts you, talking about Mm. ethical pickles, it puts you in a little bit of an ethical pickle when you want to know what inconsistency does, but you don't, you think it might be bad (laughs) and you don't want to expose learners who need positive reinforcement interventions to something that Mm. might be bad. And so what I settled on was making something that was kind of like that operant chamber that I just described for pigeons, but for people. And this is not anything that is new. Um, One of Skinner's students, um, so his name was Ogden Lindsley, who was one of the mentors of Hank Pennypacker, who was my mentor, as you might remember, had developed these kinds of chambers for people a long time ago, but now the chambers are on a computer. So when I first started, what I did was I taught human learners a really simple response, which is that they had to click in a particular space on a monitor on a computer screen. 
So, and we kind of shaped what that space was using kind of traditional shaping approaches that you would find the wrong side of the funnel now, Alec. <laughs> and then we started to look at, okay, we can teach that. We get it. It looks like this when we get it and we do it well. What happens when we start to, to goof it up? So what happens when we toss in some clicks that, and I'm going to, some reinforcers, they're points in this mm-hmm. case, um, but some, I'll use clicks just for the sake of the community that I'm in. Um, what happens when we toss in some clicks that happen when it was like, well, that wasn't quite what I was going for, but it was kind of sort of like it. Right. And I've heard people um, mention doing that in some of your clinics, yeah. right? Like I'm worried mm-hmm. about extinction. So this isn't the behavior that I was going for, but I'm going to click it anyway, because I'm worried about extinction. Um, and so I started doing some research on that for my doctoral dissertation. So this is what my dissertation was about. Is what happens when you um, have people who use reinforcers inconsistently. And it does some, some really interesting things to behavior. It it gets behavior going in ways that are maybe not what you expect. Well, one of those ways was we looked at what happened when the reinforcers happened uh, after a period of time. So it's this idea of, I haven't clicked in a while and I don't want my animal to experience extinction. So I'm just going to kind of take what they give me or something that's close enough because it's been some period of time and this looks close enough. Um, And so that's actually one of the pieces that we looked at. And what we got when we did that um, was a lot of superstitious behavior. So um, now this is a terrible, (laughs) my poor participants in these studies, they were sitting in front of a blank gray computer screen. It was gray with nothing on it, but a point counter. So this is not exciting. There's not a ton of cues about what they should be. In fact, there's no cues apart from the fact that I say use only the mouse um, to earn reinforcers. There's no cues about what they should be doing. And they developed these really set patterns. So they would like click along every edge and then click do something that was a kind of a close approximation. And they didn't have to do any of that other stuff. They didn't have to click all the way along the edges. All they had to do was after that little period of time, make that next approximation, but they did it anyway, right? And so the interesting thing is that those superstitions became really hard to change. Yeah. So when we would in a later phase with that same person, clean up the environment a little bit, make the environment so that they they weren't getting as many reinforcers if they engaged in kind of these patterns they couldn't be as efficient if they were still doing these superstitions man the superstitions stuck around and stuck around and stuck around and stuck around they were really hard to undo and so i think you know there's a there's a lot of people should people should pick this stuff up and learn about it and love it but know that there's a lot of nuance there yeah. um, to making it work really well yeah. That training clean right from the start really makes a difference long term, because otherwise you yeah. you will get you'll be carrying along with you all, all of these superstitious patterns. I've seen this, so definitely I can relate to that. And it, and it's great again when you have lots of behaviors because when it happens when when you're not having when they're not meeting criteria, 
you can go to another simple behavior instead of clicking something that is close to or when you only mm-hmm. if if you only have one behavior and they're not doing it i mean you could lower your criteria but that looks pretty much like oh it was close enough but if you have other behaviors let's say your horse is hasn't been clicked for a while for the behavior you're looking for at that criteria well just go do something else go to the mat and click them for being on the mm-hmm. mat so you have other behaviors that you can go to where you know you have a clean loop and you can maintain your reinforcement um, and and not muddy up what you're doing. Which I guess raises the question of uh, what would research studies suggest would be uh, good strategies for when training is not going well? Mm -hmm. How do you redirect so that you are avoiding the effects of desperation clicks and and some of these other things that we've been talking about. You already know the answer. (laughs) I'll let you. So if you're talking about the learner side of it, you both know the answer. Um, When you're talking about the learner side of it, right? So like just problem solve for a second. You have a learner who is in the superstitious loop and you can't bust them out of it right? You're going to hit way too much extinction. What do you do? I would go to a very small, very, very clean loop that excludes the superstitious behavior. So that's what Dominique just suggested. But let's say you are an early clicker trainer, right? So because I think this probably happens with some pretty novice people. So let's say you don't have a ton of clean loops. So that I think that strategy is a good one. But what do you do if you don't have a good established clean loop yet? Because you just started and then you listened to this podcast and you reflected back on your day of training and you went like, oh my gosh, this is me. What do you do next? You have a cup of tea. Um. You have a cup of tea (laughs) and then you you adopt a Blondie strategy, which is you change the Mm -hmm. context. You change the context dramatically, as dramatically as you can, although even actually probably a fairly small shift in context would probably work. And often that change in context is enough to break the cycle. So for example, later on in my dissertation, um, we changed the color. Uh, so I mentioned that our, my poor humans had been staring at a gray screen. And if I change the color of the screen from gray to a different color, I got a different pattern of behavior. So it broke the previous pattern, even if the person had been doing that pattern pretty reliably for you know, the first whole part of the experiment. And I think that that's a tool that even novice people can Absolutely. use to help break their learners out as they can change that context. And you've seen, and just thinking about the, the people that you've talked to on the podcast, I can think of lots of examples of people who have said like, yeah, and then it wasn't going right. So I changed, like we moved into a different stall or yeah. I, you know, did a different thing. We went into a different space or this horse was doing really badly at this facility and we moved facilities and things got a lot better. So the learner side for me is actually kind of the easy side because you change the context. The harder side is what do you do with the handler? What do you do with the teacher to break the teacher out of the pattern 
right? Because we've got to think about what the teacher is doing too. And that, that um, superstition from our learner probably got established because of something our teacher was doing. So the, we've got to do something, not just to intervene with the learner, but also to intervene with the teacher, to give the teacher some new tools so that the teacher can approach this behavior building process that they're trying to do in, an, in a new or a different way. Because if the teacher doesn't change what the teacher's doing, right. then it doesn't. Then you're going to get the same thing in a new yep. context. That's right. And the problem with the same thing in a you're new context. You're generalizing. <laughs> you are absolutely right, yeah. Dominique. You are doing exquisite <laughs> generalization training that you do not want to do. Um, so you are just going um, and teaching that learner like, oh yeah, okay. So it's the same unwanted superstition that I do over here. And then that makes it harder to get rid of the next time you change the context. Um, so it's it's really being thoughtful on both sides. And I think that the teacher side for me is harder than the learner side. So how do you change teacher behavior? You go to one of Alex's clinics. <laughs> You go to a <laughs> clinic and you send in the videos and she says, here, do you right. see right here? <laughs> That's one way. That yeah. is certainly one way. You don't yeah. train alone. Or, you know, you get another pair of eyes alone. Or, and I think Dominique, you settled on this one in the Q's podcast. So I spend a lot of time training alone. And as much as I wish there was a, Alex Carlin clinic every weekend. There is not. Um, and so I have these stretches of time where I don't have another set of eyes. Um, and so you have to be your own yeah, yeah. other set of eyes and use good video. And I think you mentioned that Dominique, right? Like that that's something that you do. Oh, I, I always, always use, I still do. I mean, you know, just this week I was, I just got like a, um, an epiphany, you know, I, I, I realized that there were two words I was using all the time that were so similar that it created confusion. It's because I train in French most of the time. The word vient, which is come, and the word bien, which is good. So, yeah. you know, I vient is, is a cue to come. Bien is what I use because even if I tongue click, I still talk, you know, I add some verbiage, I guess, which we're not supposed to do, but my animals are okay with it. But, you know, bien and bien. I mean, I've been, I've been using those words a long time, but there was a particular situation where it created some confusion. And it took me all this time to realize how similar it is. And it's just because of the video. You know, if I didn't have the video, I never would have realized that. And there are always, always things where my cues, like um, ver, uh, visual cues that I realize are so similar. You know, like if I say sometimes I, if I want a horse to touch something, I may use my hand in a way where I kind of point my fingers toward whatever I want them to touch. And it's very similar to the hand gesture I do when I want them to move forward with me. And these are things I, I never would have realized without video. So for me, video, I, 
I won't stop, uh, you know, saying how valuable it is for me because it's, it is every week, all the time still is, and I know will be for a long time. Well, it allows you to make informed decisions, right? So you might decide, okay, so I'm going to use, I'm going to use different words, or I'm going to change my hand signal so that they don't look so similar. Or you might decide, no, I'm going to, I'm going to teach yeah. the difference yeah. between these two things. Um, because I want, I want to have that level of being able to gesture in this way and have it mean this way and being able to do a very similar gesture and have it mean something else. And we know that horses, just like pigeons and rats and humans and, and all other kinds of organisms can learn these very yeah. um, exquisite discriminations if we yeah, yeah. teach them but we have to go through deliberate teaching processes to teach them. We can't, um, particularly if they're very, very um, fine discriminations, you know, we can't expect them just to emerge without being thoughtful about how we're arranging the antecedents and the consequences. And are we kind of going back and forth and using these as contrasts close enough together there that the, the learner can understand that they're slightly different. And if we don't do that thoughtfully, it's hard to do. But if we do it thoughtfully, we can teach some really phenomenal, amazing discrimination. Oh, yeah. But the animals will tell you if, if it's confusing or not, I think. But uh, and there and, you know, there's times when almost the same just gesture because of all the other context cues will be very clear to them. But sometimes not so much, you know, sometimes there, there, there may be a situation in which you realize that, oh, my God, I wouldn't know, you know, if I were at, at the other end of this, I would have no idea whether she wants me to come or whether she's telling me I did a good job in this particular context. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think video is, is, is helpful in that manner. But I love that what you're saying, you know, that we have to look at the teacher's side and you hear that in the clicker training community where people will say, well, you know, start by changing what you're doing. And being good analysts of our own behavior, right? So, and, and making sure that we have the discriminations that we need, which we don't always, and, you know, we make mistakes. Um, so I have, I have four different tongue clicks <laughs> that I use. I have four horses. So I have, and they all live out 24 seven on pasture. I have four different tongue clicks that I use with them. How can you do that? Can you show uh, us? Well, because they're not all clicks. Can you clicks, show us? Right? What do you mean? So, um, so I use, I picked this up. Um, I actually picked this up from another clicker trainer whose name I don't remember. We want a demo. Um, so I use, I use letters for okay. some of them. So um, I have an Arabian mare named City. And so just to make it easier for me to remember, I use C with her. See? So that means I have that's a, a click for her. Click. Okay. That's a click. It's a click for her. I have a I have a horse named Dune and his is d okay. So they're very like short, like a tongue yeah. click would be. Um I have a traditional tongue click. Um and then my very forgiving older standard red gelding. I use K, which started as okay and got itself shortened down to K. But so I deal with them in a herd. And I was just getting overwhelmed by using a traditional like tongue click and then having all four of them 
converge, like pose and yes. orient to me and be like, oh, great. What did I just do? And I went like, no, this is going right. to go sideways real, real right. fast. And I think, Alex, you said that you have a similar thing with your goat. Well, I don't. I, I've been. Well, not different clicks, but the, it's difficult. Right, right, all right. Of them. So when I, when I click, particularly if I've got one of the younger ones and we're interacting and I click and we're all out for a walk, then the, the very pushy older goat will come over and be right there going, oh, that treat must be for me. Go away, little goat. <laughs> and that's not fair to the younger ones. She's always ready to collect for others. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is always that question of how do you work in social groups mm. uh, so that you are not getting into some of the hierarchy. The, the, yeah, some of the between individual difficulties mm. where one individual is being pushed away by another. Yeah. And this is particularly difficult for me. And, and you know, maybe maybe we can use this as a as a way for you to tell me how I could have done this better. But I, I do tend to work with them at times in a herd, um, in part because it's what is convenient, right. right? Like I have to be around and they're on 24-7 turnout. So I don't have stalls where I can kind of deal with them individually and make it very clear who I'm working with at any given point. And I'm very fortunate that they all like me a lot. So they are enthusiastic about being around um, when I signal that training is a possibility. And so it was getting to the point that I thought, like, I am going to get, this is going to become unsafe, mm -hmm. right? Like I have four horses, they are all vying for food. This is going to get unsafe. So I essentially have them on stays, on <laughs> on a sit stay, right. except they don't sit, they just stay. Um, so they are all on stays. And then I have one that I'm working with. Well, then the same tongue click became a problem because I had cued somebody to like stay. And now I'm clicking. And that horse understandably moved from mm -hmm. their stay. Because like, oh, great. You told me to stay. I stayed. That was your criterion. Now we're done. I, yeah. I will come get the street that you have somehow foolishly offered to another horse. And so it kind of evolved out of that as I needed a solution to be able to say like, this click is not for you. You need to continue to be in the stationary or doing whatever it was that I set you doing while I went off and, and worked with somebody else. But the reason that I got down this path in the first place is that I am, I'm the my tongue doesn't always obey what I want it to do. And so I'll be working with a horse and I will do the wrong click. <laughs> and then I go drop. And I hope that the horse whose click I just did was doing something mm -hmm. reasonable at that moment. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about, okay, so I'm getting weird behavior out of my horse now. Is that because I just, you know, five minutes ago, I did a a badly timed click, or I meant to do a click for my Arabian mare, but I made the noise for, you know, my Missouri Foxtrotter gelding. And so now my Missouri Foxtrotter gelding is doing something really weird. And is that because I had captured this accidentally? And now I'm getting a lot more of it because, you know, reinforcement. And so Jesus actually has this great paper that he published in the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior in 2019, 2018, 2019, I think, recently, um, where he talked about the power of a single oh, click. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah. So yeah, for people who aren't familiar with this study, um, 
so Jesus is a faculty member in behavior analysis at the University of North Texas. And he did this study where they deliberately like put these badly timed clicks yep. in, but just one of them. And then looked kind of to see whether they would get more of that behavior. Like, does it get captured or does one badly yeah. timed click really, really not matter all that much? Yeah. Bad news. It matters. <laughs> that was the paper they did with Mary Hunter. They used a uh, portal. Mm -hmm. Yes. To torment the learners with that one. <laughs> Yes, and torment they did because as Dominique just mentioned, it was bad news. Like that one badly timed click had these like long-term implications. And so I think one of the things when I talk about what happens when there are inconsistencies in training is that, you know, as, as teachers, we've got to give ourselves a little bit of grace. Yes there are going to be inconsistencies in your training. I watch people who have been teaching children for decades and they are incredibly sophisticated behavior analysts and there are periodically inconsistencies in their training because life happens and, and, and things happen that you don't expect. So I don't think that we will ever be able to say like, well, I will have a perfectly consistent training environment. There will be no inconsistencies right. in my training. Um, it will be wonderful and implemented always just the way that I intend that it would be. I think that's a like great aspirational goal is to get as close to that as you can and doing things like going to clinics and getting feedback and seeing new approaches is a great way to move yourself towards that goal. But also being able to look at your own training and say, that was an inconsistency, right? Like, there was a bobble there and I bobbled on it on the reinforcer delivery or that cue wasn't quite right. Or, you know, we know that that reinforcer deliveries are so, so important. Um, and so if you start to see something that looks a little bit weird, going back and saying, all right, what am I doing? You know, yeah. like, what am yeah. I doing that is leading to my learner doing this? And how do I clean up that loop? So that on my side of the loop, yes, right? Because until I can get my side of the loop a little bit cleaner, there is nothing good that's going to happen on my learner side of the loop. Um, Absolutely. Because I am not, I am capturing all yep. kinds of things you're, that are serving to confuse my learner. learner will become consistent when you become consistent. So that was the bad mm -hmm. news, but the good news is when you do mess up, you can change the environment and start over again, because now we're in a new, fresh, unspoiled context. That's the good news. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think if you're thoughtful about that, I think one nice thing about this idea that, that behavior is malleable um, and is sensitive to the current environment is that you can give yourself grace, right? Like if you have an inconsistent training session or you realize like, oh, ooh, wrong hand. Oh, ooh, not timed right. Oh, ooh, wrong click that you go like, oh, okay. You know, like be more careful. Think about what, how you need to change your own environment to make sure that you can be as consistent as you can be. And then go forward with your training. Like nothing is, 
irrevocably broken That's because right. of that. And that, that other, you know, we talk about video, but we also, we don't talk enough about dress rehearsals. You know, okay, you, you, you're starting to see that there's some issues coming in. Go have that proverbial cup of tea. Think about what are the skills that I need to work on that would help me to be more consistent. Let me learn those, practice those without the horse, and then go ask my horse, how am I doing? You know, so in the clinics, there are always the, the rope handling clinic, for example, where they're without a horse, with just sliding down lead ropes. But you, you practice there first, because uh, if you went straight out to the horse, the inconsistencies would just keep piling one on top of another on top of another. But you can practice the, the needed skills and then see how you're doing by asking the horse. And when you see that there are these, you know, pauses and questions or little uh, hesitations, whatever the, these tiny indicators are that, oh, I'm not making sense right now, that you pay attention to those. So that loopy training, the structure of it, becomes a habit, a habit of thought. And I think that's really where we're heading. It's, it's life happens. We are, there will be times when we're inconsistent, when we're in a hurry, where we misjudged what was needed in terms of prerequisite skills, whatever. The loopy training approach becomes a habit of thought. And then mm -hmm. those inconsistencies uh, become fewer. They become easier to encapsulate so they don't spread throughout the training. And, you know, I think about Panda, uh, and I always add the mini, I, I trained to be a guide in case people don't know who Panda is. But when she was in training with me, I was so consistent, so consistent in the training because I knew that there was never going to be a time when her blind handler was going to see the curb. So we always had to stop at the curbs, for example. And there's this wonderful expression that John Lyons uses of the horse doesn't know when it doesn't count, so it always has to count. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, he's saying that in the context of uh, a negative reinforcement command-based paradigm, uh, whereas we're looking at it from the cue-based positive reinforcement paradigm. But it still holds, it still is valid. And when I turned Panda over to Anne, in many ways it was, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to miss having my little shadow with me. But on the other hand, it was a huge relief because... You could be consistent again. <laughs> That's right. I did not need that level of consistency because I could see the curbs. So mm. I did not need that precise, consistent training to be able to go for a walk with Panda. Mm. But I had to maintain that level of consistency so that she would maintain that level of consistency. And it's interesting with our with the children that I work with in schools, right? So we are often, not often, we are sometimes able to arrange environments for them, typically on a short-term basis that are more consistent, um, that we have some 
programs in our district that allow students to access some, some specialist teachers who are trained in behavior analysis, um, they're board certified behavior analysts, who have a really much more detailed understanding of how contingencies work and how to arrange environments. And our students tend to, to do really well in those environments. Um, but they're designed to be short-term environments. And so what's really interesting is one of the things that we've realized is that sometimes we need to program for inconsistency. So we need to yeah. try to figure out like what kinds of inconsistency are going to be really detrimental and what kinds is your behavior kind of resilient in the face of this, these forms of inconsistency so that we can teach the teachers so that that student goes back to like, these are the mistakes that you cannot make. And these are the mistakes like, you know, you've got 20 kids in your classroom. If you've got to let something go, let this piece go, but really be really consistent with the way that you're acknowledging success or be really consistent with the language that you use in the rules at the start of the day or whatever that is um, for that particular student. Um, and sometimes that comes too to teaching students how to recruit reinforcers for themselves, right? So to improve the consistency of their teachers by being able to nominate when things should happen in the classroom. And, and this has been a really useful strategy um, of teaching children who need lots of kind of affirmation statements during their day to feel successful to learn to raise their hands and ask their teachers, am I doing a good job, right? Like, what can I do? And, and, and those kinds of responses help to prompt a teacher who's got a lot. I mean, our, our public school teachers have incredible burdens that are placed yeah. on them in terms of managing behavior and structuring curricula and delivering that curricula and looking out for students' welfare. They've got a, you know, they've got about 876 things that they've got to juggle at any given moment. Yeah. And so if our students can help them to be more consistent, um, then we try to, to build some of that behavior too, uh, so that it becomes this mutually beneficial conversation where the student's not feeling frustrated because the teacher's not acknowledging them and the teacher's not feeling frustrated because the student's not doing as well as they know that they could, um, but that you have this give and take between the two um, that ends up benefiting both of them. Um, and so there's lots of little little strategies oh, that support across these both teaching, teaching contexts, both when you're talking about teaching our horses and teaching our learners in school. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about, um, is, you know, you, you mentioned these dress rehearsals yes. um, a moment ago, Alex, and I think we know that when we're learning new skills, that being able to role play those skills is is something and get feedback on them is something that's really important. And that feedback can come from somebody else or it can come back from, come from our analysis of our, our own performance. Um, and I think that when you're talking about those dress rehearsals, what you're really doing is taking a very mastery-based learning approach. Um, so we are saying like, when you're gonna need to deploy this skill, there's going to be a lot of variables happening. Rope handling is a spectacular example. And so, there's going to be variations in where, where your horse is and what your horse is doing and the orientation of your horse to you. And is it sunny? Is it windy? 
how nervous are you that you're about to pick up this lead rope and slide down the lead? You know, there's there's lots of there's lots of variables that are varying, and a, a good way to start is by slicing that down into something that's much more manageable, which is that like here is a halter that's not attached to a horse. It is not going to move. It is not going to spook unpredictably. You will know what orientation it's in because you have hung it on your door or your wall. Um, you, you will not have to worry about being nervous that you're about to slide up this lead and, and what is this horse's history and how are they going to react because your door and this halter unattached to a horse will be perfectly fine. Um, and building all of that history with in that context and then transferring stimulus control, right? Yes. So starting where your learner is going to be really successful and building mastery in this context where your learner is already successful and then transferring it out. And Lucy talked about some of that in her work with her kids, right? Like start where your learners are already being successful. So she started with those like two point gains, right? Highlighting those two point gains. That's where her learners were already being successful and build and grow those and transfer those. You're getting them in English. I bet you can get them in math. Right. Um, and so I think that that is maybe, you know, one of the keys to the kingdom to getting people to adopt reinforcement based approaches and stick with them is not jumping, you know, as much as people want to jump to, well, I have six ropes on my horse and we're doing, you yes. know, 18th level dressage. <laughs> um, that you've got to kind of start where you're going to be successful so that you can make your learner yeah. successful. I think that's true for teachers of horses and teachers of students and teachers of everybody. And I'll, I'll just sort of put in a clinic plug in terms of, I know people often want to skip the getting started clinic because, oh, you know, I already know this stuff. I already know basic targeting, et cetera, et cetera. But in the constructional training, in loopy training, we want to start with what you already know. We want to start with success. So I don't want to jump in with brand new stuff that's completely uh, foreign territory for you. I want to jump in in the earlier steps where you can say, oh, I already know this. I already know this. It's like, great. That's great. That's perfect that you already know it. It's great, yeah. You know, I think I, I think one of the reasons why I liked school and why I did well was because my mother taught me to read before I went to school. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived there, I felt competent. I didn't feel lost. And I already had part of the skills that were needed. So I think it's a great thing to start where you're already successful is great strategy. Oh. Yeah, you should be able to say, this is familiar. I know yeah. this. I know this. This is good. I know this. Now, let's nudge it into the beginning pieces of things that are going to be unfamiliar. Yeah. But it's a nudge. It's not a push. Right, right. It's just a nudge. Yes, and small enough, too, that you can see the connection to what you already know and leverage what you already know to learn something yes. new. Like, we know that humans learn content better when it is, um, the term for it is interleaved, um, mixed in with things that they already know, right? It allows them to make some connections mm -hmm. that 
deepen their understanding of the content. And so it's, it's um, kind of an important fundamental process, I think, or at least a facilitative process. I feel as though we could talk for another three hours, but it's, we've now talked uh, quite a few hours and the sun has gone down, the temperatures are dropping, and I'm a little concerned that the rain that we're having is going to turn to sleet for my drive back to the barn. So what I'm going to say at this point is there's no good place to end this conversation. Mm -hmm. We just should keep talking and talking and talking, which means that we're going to have to come back for another round at some point in the uh, future for another afternoon of conversation, which I, I hope you would uh, will join us for because this has been this has been more than delightful. This has provided a lot of really great things to chew on. So I thank you immensely for this afternoon. Thank you, Claire. Thanks again for having me. Remember at the beginning when I said we can cover a lot of ground? <laughs> I think we did that. I agree with Claire. We did indeed cover a lot of ground. We certainly went down some really interesting rabbit holes. When I look back at my notes, I'm just astounded at all the different directions this conversation took us. There's a lot here to unpack. So have fun, enjoy, and next time we'll be starting a whole new conversation. Stay safe and have fun with your horses.